Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Uh, well, we're going to uh, take a one-week break today from the series we've been in uh, on Elijah and Elisha. Uh, why? Because the Lord has put on my heart to discuss today how to respond to the dark times that we're in. And so I, so I hope this message is extremely relevant uh, and encouraging. So I want to look today at uh, responding in faith to dark, to dark times, lessons from Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk. So turn with me to the prophet Habakkuk, uh, chapter 3. We're going to read uh, uh, most of the, the entire third chapter of, of Habakkuk, so beginning in uh, verse 1. Uh, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens. And his praise filled the earth. His splendor is like the sunrise, as bright as lightning. A two-pronged lightning bolt flashes from his hand as his power is displayed. Plague goes before him. Pestilence behind him. He takes his battle stance and shakes the earth. He looks and makes the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumble. The primeval hills collapse. He marches forth. Uh, is the Lord angry at the rivers? Uh, is your wrath against the streams? Do you rage against the sea? Uh, is this why you ride your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow. Uh, you called for many arrows. You split the earth uh, with, flat, with flash floods. When the mountains see you, they shake. The torrential downpour sweeps by. The deep roars. Uh, it lifts its waves high. The sun and the moon stand still in the heavens at the glint of you. Flying arrows at, 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 at the lightning of your flashing spear. You furiously stomp the earth, and in anger you trample down the nations. You march out to deliver your people, uh, to save your anointed one. You tremble with your horse, uh, uh, sorry, you, you trample the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come upon the nation invading us. But the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines. But the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food. But there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Amen. Well, the book of Habakkuk is quite apropos uh, to look at today because it tells us uh, how to handle evil times, whether they're society-wide evil times or just your own personal evil times. The context is that Habakkuk prophetically is, is seeing that the great Babylonian empire is going to crush his country, Israel. Uh, and the description at the very end where it says there's no figs, there's no grapes, no olives, no fields, no sheep, no cattle. That's describing a starvation-level social collapse. It's like Europe after World War II, in which not only millions of people were killed uh, in the violence, but millions more starved to death in the winter times right after the war. So Habakkuk is here describing an absolute social disaster. And at the very end... He comes to face it, nonetheless, with poise and patience 
and powerful faith in the Lord. Habakkuk is teaching us that it's possible to face that kind of disaster and still have a life of sustained joy in the midst of it. Back in 1851, an English missionary named Alan Gardner was shipwrecked with a group of people on a little remote, uninhabited island off the southern trip of South America. They all died of starvation, one by one. He was the last to die. They later found his journal uh, next to his corpse, and the last entry quoted from Psalm 34, verse 10. Young lions do want and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. And the very last thing he wrote in his journal is this. I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. Now here's a man dying of starvation, far from home, his body's broken, all his hopes are dashed, and yet his last words are, I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. Now how do you and I ordinarily come to the conclusion that God is good? When do we typically say, God's good? We do it when things are going well for us, right? We do it when our fig trees are blossoming, uh, when, 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 when all of our, our vats are, are full, when the, when the money is there, uh, when our health is there, uh, when, when things are going the way that you want them to go, uh, when the circumstances of your life are doing well, that is when you say, God is good. But this man somehow found a way to access the goodness and the love of God apart from life's circumstances. Because everything in his life had gone wrong. Yet he was in contact with the goodness of God. Uh, he was overwhelmed with the, with the reality of it. Even in the midst of his terrible tribulation and suffering. You see, you and I, we infer the goodness of God from the good things happening in our life. Then we feel like God is good. But this man, he came in direct contact with it. And he knew and experienced the goodness and the love of God despite life's circumstances. And as a result, he could face with faith and with poise anything that happened. Now, how do we do that? Well, that's what the book of Habakkuk shows us. He says, though the fig tree doesn't blossom, etc., in spite of nothing going right, he says in Habakkuk 3.18, yet I rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. Now, what does it mean to rejoice in your suffering? Notice very carefully, it does not say rejoice for your suffering. It says rejoice in your suffering. This passage teaches us four things about rejoicing in suffering. Number one, what is it? Number two, when does it happen? Number three, how is it done? And then finally, why it's possible. So how do we rejoice in our suffering? Uh, What is it, when, how, uh, and why? So first, rejoicing in suffering, what is it? Well, Habakkuk 3.19, it likens rejoicing in suffering, he, he likens it to walking sure-footedly upon the mountaintops. After Habakkuk says uh, that I'm rejoicing despite my suffering, he says in Habakkuk 3.19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread upon the heights. So what's he talking about here? Uh, this is a metaphor that he uses. To rejoice in your suffering, he says, is like walking sure-footedly on the mountaintops. 
Here's what this image is, is getting across. To go up high in the mountains can, can be very dangerous. Uh, to climb the mountains, it can be incredibly dangerous uh, because one little slip and you're gone. But if you're able to navigate it, if you're able to walk sure-footedly, be able to, to be up there and, and to live up there, you know, then in ancient times, that was the safest place you could possibly be. You know, the people who inhabited uh, the high ground, they couldn't be easily attacked. Uh, you can't attack too well going up a mountain. In addition, the people up on the heights, they could see for miles in all directions. So they could see what was happening, not only hours, but even days ahead. They had the, this vantage point. And therefore, what, what we're being told here is that walking on the heights, on the one hand, is, is, is way more dangerous than walking down here. And on the other hand, if you're able to pull it off, it's far safer. Indeed, it's wonderful. Uh, uh, indeed, whoever possessed the heights in the ancient times controlled the whole neighborhood. Now, this is saying that when suffering comes to you, and it will come to you from time to time, when disappointments uh, and failures and hard times come to you, if properly processed, it can actually push you up to the heights spiritually. You know, we've all seen people go through suffering. Some of them get softer and more tender. Others get harder uh, and angry and cynical. Some get more empathetic and compassionate. Others get, get bitter uh, and critical. Some get more humble. Others get more arrogant. Suffering, if not properly handled, can make you incredibly arrogant. Because suffering can make you feel like, oh, nobody understands what I'm going through. So suffering can, can make you feel so noble uh, and so self-righteous. But some people get more humbled by suffering, and yet others get more arrogant. Some people, like, like Alan Gardner, in the story we just discussed uh, of his shipwreck off of South America, they're able to face anything and maintain their steadfast faith in God to the end. Others get more fragile. Some people get, get sweet. Others get perpetually sour. In other words, we'll put this in the overhead, suffering will make you either a far better or a far worse person than you were before. Suffering, again, on the overhead, suffering will either make you fall far further than you've ever fallen before and destroy you spiritually and emotionally, or it'll put you up on the heights. In fact, it says, again, Habakkuk 3.19, that the Lord makes me walk, uh, literally, it says, on, on my high places, uh, on my heights, uh, heights of character, uh, closeness to God, vantage point, able to see things. A Messianic rabbi friend of mine recently related to me how he was ministering uh, to, uh, in the hospital to one of his members who was very, very sick. Uh, uh, and, and, the guy, and the guy said this to his rabbi, you know, you know, Rabbi, the closeness to God that I've gotten, uh, the reality of God in, in prayer, the sense of his presence, uh, the sense uh, of his love, uh, of his understanding, of his, of his being close to my heart, uh, the beauty I now see in prayer, the vantage point I've gotten, how I've been raised to the heights by my suffering, I would not trade that for anything, even for, for, for more years upon this earth. I don't want to die, he says. Uh, I don't want to leave my family, but I will not give this up for anything, not even for 10 more years of life. Now, what happened to this guy? What happened to him like, to make him such a, a spiritual giant all of a sudden? He was pushed to the heights by his suffering uh, on the overhead. In the same way, your suffering 
We either lift you up to the heights or it will destroy you. So you have to learn how to rejoice in suffering because it'll be like walking on the mountaintops. Uh, So that's number one, what it is, uh, rejoicing in suffering. Uh, It's to walk sure-footedly on the mountaintops, treading on the heights. So number two, when does this happen? And the answer is this, on the overhead. The answer is it happens concurrently with the sorrow and the grief. Rejoicing in the Lord does not come after the sorrow and the grief. It happens during the sorrow and the grief. And this is very extremely important to see. Uh, Habakkuk 3.16 uh, is his, his, his response to everything he's been seeing. All through the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk has been seeing God's judgment. His ju- God's judgment both on Israel and on the nations. Uh, and now here is Habakkuk's response. Verse 16. Verse, chapter 3, verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded. Literally in the Hebrew, my bowels trembled. <laughs> my lips quivered at the sound. It means he's crying. Uh, decay crept into my bones. My legs trembled. Uh, so the picture here, he's shaking like a leaf. Uh, he can't even stand. He's smitten with, with grief and, and sorrow. But then he says this, again, at the end of verse 16. Yet I'll wait patiently for the day of calamity. I'll rejoice in the Lord. I'll wait upon the Lord. Now, this Hebrew word here that's translated wait patiently, it's the word uh, anuach. We'll put this on the overhead, by the way. It's from noach, to rest. It means deep peace and repose. So in Hebrew, this verse, Habakkuk 3.16, it's startling. Uh, He's saying, the overhead, he's saying, I am so filled with sorrow. I'm weeping uncontrollably. I can't even stand on my own two feet. And yet, I'm filled with peace. Now, we have trouble being able to do that, don't we? Because we think you can either have peace or you can have sorrow. But you couldn't possibly rejoice in your sorrow. But Habakkuk says, yes, you can. Habakkuk tells us that joy in the Lord happens concurrently. It happens within the sorrow. Now, a lot of people mistakenly think that that rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of sorrow, it's just some kind of stiff upper lip, some kind of stoicism, we don't let anything get to you. A lot of people think, if I'm weeping uncontrollably, if I'm filled with grief and sorrow, well, that's a sign of lack of faith, right? But that's not what you see in the Bible. Uh, for example, in the book of Job, all these terrible things happen to him. And, and what does Job say? Look, Job 1, verse 20. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and cried out to the Lord. And then I read in verse 22, Job 1.22, Yet in all these things, Job sinned not. But today, there's a lot of believers uh, who would look at that and say, What a lack of faith. And yet the Bible says, He sinned not. Why? Because rejoicing in the Lord happens within sorrow and suffering. Here's how it works. It's not either I'm happy in the Lord or I'm filled with sorrow and grief. No. Uh, The grief and the sorrow, if properly processed, enhances the joy because it drives you more into God, just like it did for this man who who, who was very sick that my rabbi friend was ministering to. It drove him further into God. Just like, for example, uh, in the Northeast, when it gets cold outside, it kicks up the furnace even higher. In the same way, the sorrow and the grief, if you let it, will drive you into God. It will show you resources you never had, And therefore, it will enhance your joy. 
And conversely, uh, the other side of the circle, the, the enhanced joy will enable you to feel the grief in a redemptive way. You know, we have a tendency to, to say, I'm afraid of the grief. Uh, I'm afraid of the sorrow. Uh, uh, I don't want to feel that way. Uh, I want to just simply rejoice in the Lord. And so we see these two as opposing one another. But look at Yeshua. Perfect man, right? Sinless, without spot or blemish. And he went around crying all the time. <laughs> a man of sorrows and grief. Always weeping, always sorrowing. You know why? Because he was perfect. Because when you're not all absorbed in yourself, you feel the sadness of others. And therefore, what you have here in, in Habakkuk is an example where the joy of the Lord happens inside of the sorrow. It doesn't replace the sorrow. It doesn't come after the sorrow. It doesn't come after the uncontrollable weeping. But rather, the weeping drives you into the joy. It enhances the joy. And then the joy, in turn, enables you to actually feel your grief without it sinking you. In other words, you're finally emotionally healthy. That's how it works. Emotional health, spiritual health. And so that's number one, what it is. That's number two, when it happens. It happens concurrently. Uh, And then number three, how do you do this? Now that we've seen, you know, that that, that rejoicing in the Lord doesn't happen after uh, the heart heart pounding and the lips quivering and the legs trembling and and the knees buckling, uh, it happens during it. Then you begin to realize rejoicing in the Lord isn't just a feeling that comes if you hold on long enough. We'll put this on the overhead. Rejoicing in the Lord is a spiritual discipline. It's something you do whether you feel like it or not. Uh, And there's three parts to it. Uh, to, to, to redemptively handling grief and sorrow. Number one, uh, it's repeating. Number two, remembering. And three, rejoicing uh, in the right things. So number one, repeating. Uh, notice what Habakkuk says, Habakkuk uh, 3.18. Uh, Yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. Notice, which is very common in Hebrew word structure, uh, that he repeats himself. Habakkuk says, I'll rejoice in the Lord. And then he immediately he adds, and I'll be joyful in God my Savior. Now, why does he say it twice? Well, the Bible almost never says anything once. <laughs> the Bible constantly repeats itself by saying the same thing a little bit differently. Uh, the scholars call it uh, synonymous parallelism. And it's used throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's used for four things. It's used, number one, for emphasis. Number two, for poetic structure. Number three, for ease of memory. And number four, to add in additional details and to flesh out the first statement. So, for example, by saying, I rejoice in the Lord, and then saying, I rejoice in God my Savior, it's a little bit different, and you understand it, therefore, a bit better. Uh, It goes deeper because it's being said twice. Uh, It goes deeper into you, and your understanding of it is a bit richer. This is a deep pattern in the Bible, repetition. For example, we have four Gospels, not just one. You know, it's, it's a lot of the same material, but there are always, always new de- details in each one. Uh, and it goes deeper, and your understanding is enhanced as you read each one. Uh, the repetition also aids memory. And it, in fact, it's always been a kind of memory method used in Jewish learning. Uh, there's examples throughout the Bible. Uh, for example, God warns Pharaoh, and here, here in the Passover season, right? God warns Pharaoh of a coming famine. But he sends him two dreams. Not one, but two. Repetition, emphasis. Joseph gets two dreams about his future ruling status. Many of Yeshua's miracles are repeated. You know, he feeds the 4,000, then he feeds the 5,000. Nothing happens once. 
Everything in the Bible happens over and over again. Why? Well, biblical scholar Michael Wilcock, he says this. We'll put it on the overhead. He says, in, in Proverbs 62.11, we read, Once God has spoken, but twice I've heard it. God teaches us by his method, this method of repetition, he writes, through scripture, because the human mind is incurably centrifugal, forever flying off at a tangent. It, it must be brought back to the great central truths of the gospel over and over. Our minds must be made to literally to concentrate, to concentrate. And now here's the point he's making. Yeshua, uh, for example, on the cross, in the moment of his greatest agony, what does Yeshua do? He quotes scripture. Now, how in the world did he have the presence of mind and soul to shape his response in the midst of the most searing pain by quoting the Bible? How was he able to shape his response in the middle of this incredible agony and torture by quoting from the scriptures? For example, he quotes the first verse of Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he quotes the very last verse of Psalm 22, verse 31. It is finished. It is done. Yeshua was able to do this because all his life he drilled the Bible into his heart. He drilled it into his heart over and over and over again. He meditated on it day and night so that when he spoke from the depths of his soul, the word of God just automatically came forth. When you pierced him, as it were, he bled the word of God. It was part of him. In the same way we are to drill the scriptures into our heart. We are to meditate on it day and night. We're to worship. How? By singing scripture. We're to study the word of God as our meat and our drink. We're to talk about the scripture with our friends and our family. Talk about it at your homes now as you're quarantined. We're to study it as a group at shul uh, and in our home groups. We're to immerse ourselves in God's word. It's our life and our length of days. And every time we do this, it goes a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. And that's the only way you're going to change. It's the only way you're going to be able to handle hard times and suffering. Repetition. It's the spiritual dis- discipline of repeating and going over the scriptures again and again. That's the first part of how to rejoice in suffering, through repetition. That's number one. Number two, uh, remembering. The main thing that the Hebrew, that, 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 I'm sorry, that Habakkuk does in, in chapter 3 uh, is basically, if you look at it carefully, he's recapitulating the story of the Exodus. Uh, of course, it's very timely because this is Pesach week. Habakkuk 3 is basically a recounting of the Exodus. Chapter 3 describes God delivering his people and crushing the leader of the land of wickedness, Pharaoh, Egypt. Uh, Habakkuk talks about pestilence and plagues, uh, which is how the Lord delivered us from Egypt. Uh, Habakkuk describes the shaking of the ground, just like what happened at Mount Sinai, uh, the trampling of the sea, the, the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, the chariots, he describes. Pharaoh tried to follow them in, in, into the sea with his chariots. Uh, uh, Habakkuk speaks of the churning of the sea, Pharaoh and his army being drowned in the Red Sea. Uh, and then he goes on to describe uh, God's thunder and his lightning, exactly what we see when we read when God gave the Ten Commandments. What Habakkuk is doing, he's going back to the, the proto-gospel, Uh, Because the Exodus was the gospel in the form that Habakkuk had at that time. Indeed, throughout the New Testament, the gospel is linked and compared over and over again to the Exodus. Yeshua is the new and greater Moses. 
even as Moses, and even as Moses promises in Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your own people. You must listen to him. We have 12 apostles seen as the, the new representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel. The uh, book of Matthew has five sermons paralleling the five books of Moses. The Gentiles are grafted in to the new covenant, even as a mixed multitude uh, leaves Egypt to, uh, along with Israel. The Sermon on the Mount reflects back to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Indeed, the whole topic of the Sermon on the Mount is Yeshua's divinely inspired commentary on the Ten Commandments. Uh, Yeshua was 40 days in the wilderness after his immersion, even as the children of Israel were 40 years in the wilderness uh, after crossing the Red Sea. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul describes the crossing of the Red Sea as being baptized, as being immersed in Yeshua. And even as we dip the parsley in the salt water uh, at the Pesach Seder twice, uh, this is a picture of our new life. Right? It's a picture, the first time it's a picture of our new life being, being immersed through the Red Sea. Uh, and in fact, the Hebrew word used in the Haggadah uh, for the dipping of the parsley uh, is the word tevilah, the same word for immersion uh, or baptism. Exact same Hebrew word. The rabbis say we dip twice. The first is to represent the sin and the deception that brought Israel into Egypt, which, which was the selling of Joseph into slavery. And we read in the Torah, Genesis 37, verse 31, then they got Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. The word here, dipped, in Genesis 37, is the exact same Hebrew verb, tevilah, immersion, baptism, when they dipped Joseph's robe in the blood. Same word. So the first dipping, the rabbis say, represents our sin. It's our old man dying in the waters of baptism, if you will, represented by the dipping in the salt water. The second time we dip the parsley, the rabbis say, is a memorial of our redemption from slavery in Egypt uh, in the story of the Passover. So we read this in Exodus 12, verse 20, um, verse 22. Dip it into the blood that's in the basin. Apply some of the blood uh, that's in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. Again, the same Hebrew verb is used here, tevilah, to dip, to immerse, to baptize. We put the blood on the hyssop, we're dipping or immersing it, tevilah. Uh, The second dipping of hyssop in the blood of the lamb, symbolized by the second dipping of the parsley, which, by the way, resembles hyssop. Uh, Dipping it into the salt water, this represents our redemption through the blood of the lamb. And a new birth coming out of the waters of immersion, of baptism as a new man, a new creation in Yeshua Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yeshua is the fulfillment of the Passover and the fulfillment of the Exodus. His blood on the doorpost of your heart will free you from sin and death. Now the second dipping of the hyssop into the blood of the Lamb at the basin of the doors of the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt the blood was then, of course, applied to the doorpost and the lintel of the house, forming the Hebrew letter chet, which stands for life, chai. Under the blood of the lamb, the children of Israel were protected uh, and delivered from the tenth plague, the angel of death, uh, and the death of all the firstborn. And so, therefore, we also must become secondborn, born again, protected from the death of the, of the firstborn. And we are secondborn through the blood of the lamb. Note that in Egypt, the Israelites took shelter under the letter Chet, painted on their doorpost. Written what? Written literally in blood, in the blood of the Lamb. Literally thus fulfilling Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, 
I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's the blood that makes atonement for, the, for one's life. In other words, without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sin. So we, they're literally under the blood of the lamb in Egypt, under the letter chet, for life, they had life. Fulfilling Leviticus 17.11. So this is our people were in slavery and bondage in Egypt. And God delivers us from the blood of the lamb. In the same way, we are in bondage to sin and death, and God delivers us by the blood of the ultimate Pesach lamb, Yeshua the Messiah, the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And so in all these ways, and many, many more ways, uh, the gospel recapitulates and fulfills all the symbolism of the Exodus. And the Exodus was the model of the gospel that Habakkuk had in his day and time. And so here's what Habakkuk is doing. He's telling himself and reminding himself and remembering, he's remembering the gospel as it were, and this is what helps him to rejoice in the midst of suffering. This is what gives him peace in the middle of plague and pestilence. And you see this throughout the Bible. Psalm 42 verse 5, we read, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within you? Put your hope in God, for I yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, who is the psalmist talking to here? It says he's talking to his soul. He's talking to himself. He's reminding himself and remembering the goodness of God. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget not. Remember, forget not all his benefits. Again, who is the psalmist talking to? He's talking to his soul, to himself. He's encouraging himself to remember the goodness of the Lord and to forget not all his benefits. The psalmist, to put this in the overhead, the psalmist is saying this, I've got to connect to what I know about God and what I know he's done in the past and connect that now to my present. On the overhead again, rejoicing in tribulation says, instead of looking at the storm, Instead of looking at the waves, instead of looking at your circumstances, you need to go back to the gospel, back to Exodus, back to what God has done in history. You know who he is. You know what he's done. So, for example, in your own life, what does it mean that God raised Yeshua from the dead? What does it mean to you right now? That God has raised Yeshua from the dead, and how can you now apply that central truth to your life and to your circumstances? How can you use this as a central lens through which to see everything in your life? So to deal with tribulation, you've got to, number one, repeat. You've got to, number two, remember. And number three, you've got to rejoice in the right things. And this command to rejoice, it does not simply refer to your feelings. So Philippians 4.4, 4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, how can Paul command this? How can Paul command a feeling? Well, he's not. You can't command someone to feel happy. That's not what he's saying. Where the Paul's talking about a spiritual discipline. Rejoicing is not just a feeling. It's not just a mental thing either, just a stoic thing. It's not the same to yourself, uh, I'm going to do the right thing regardless of how I feel. No. Rejoicing means to treasure, uh, to save, to savor. Uh, rejoicing, is, rejoicing is to take something that's happened and to say, what should this now mean to me? How should I feel about this? 
Look at what Yeshua has done. Uh, uh, look at who he is. Uh, let me see it now from this perspective. So on the overhead, rejoicing is a form of adoring. Uh, you're adoring. <laughs> you're appreciating. You're valuing. Uh, you're, you're, you're praising. And that gets us into the secret. Habakkuk looked at the Exodus, which was his gospel uh, as far as he knew it. Uh, and that's what got him to the place where he could say, even though I'm falling down, even though I'm trembling like a leaf, I nonetheless have a deep peace. I can rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God, my Savior, even in the midst of my suffering. And yet we have even a leg up on Habakkuk because we have a perspective on the Exodus that he did not have. What is that perspective? Uh, in Luke 10, Yeshua sends out his disciples uh, and he gives them the power to heal and to cast out demons. And then they went out, and they were very, very successful. And we read this in Luke ten seventeen. The 70, 72 disciples returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. They were excited. Uh, they had become very popular with their success. But what does Yeshua say? How does Yeshua respond? Look at verse 20, Luke 10, verse 20. Rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written, literally in the Greek, engraved in heaven. Now, here's what Yeshua was saying. To have your name engraved uh, on stone or on metal, it means you've accomplished something. It means it's an award. Uh, it means you've accomplished something big and important and noteworthy. It means you're significant, you're valuable. You've done something, and it's engraved for everyone to see. And here's what Yeshua was saying. Don't you dare look at the things you're accomplishing in this world as the basis for your self-worth. Don't say, oh, well, I'm a law partner. I'm somebody. <laughs> or I got into medical school. Therefore, I'm somebody. Uh, uh, I made the dean's list. Well, I'm, I'm somebody. Uh, I, got be, I got the cute boyfriend or the girlfriend, and therefore, I'm somebody. I made the select soccer team. You know, I'm really somebody. Look at all the money I've made. I'm somebody. Yeshua says, no. Stop rejoicing in all that stuff. Stop savoring it. Stop doting on it. Stop caressing it in your mind. Because if that's the basis for your joy, that when your circumstances change, you will be destroyed. You will fall down off the mountaintop. Because if your heart is rejoicing in these things, and if this is what is giving you your self-worth, giving you your identity, then when things go wrong, you will be destroyed. Instead, Yeshua says, I want you to rejoice in this. That your names, our past tense, are already engraved already written in heaven. You've already been accepted. If you've given your life to Messiah, Yeshua, and are found in him, you, you, you are already loved with everlasting love. Now, how can Yeshua make such an amazing claim? Here's how. Speaking again of Passover, did you know that Yeshua, he actually met Moses? In Luke 9, Yeshua goes to the mountaintop, or the mountain of transfiguration. And on those heights, he, suddenly, he begins to shine like the sun. Uh, he, he's radiating the Shekinah glory of God out from within. Uh, and Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, they appear to testify of him. In Luke 9, 31, it says, They, Moses and Elijah, spoke about his, Yeshua's, departure, which he was about to fulfill uh, at Jerusalem. But the literal Greek says that they spoke to him not about his departure, they spoke to him about his exodus. 
Moses and Elijah spoke to Yeshua about his exodus, which he was about to fulfill at Jerusalem. So here we have Moses showing up and saying, in essence, I pulled off a great exodus, but the exodus that you're about to accomplish, Yeshua, is the ultimate one. Uh, On the overhead, Moses risked his life to liberate our people from physical bondage. But Yeshua, the ultimate Moses, gave his life in order to liberate us from spiritual bondage, from sin and death itself. The first Moses risked his life to, to liberate our people. But the second Moses, the ultimate Moses, gave his life to free all people from sin, Satan, death, and the grave and hell. And the overhead. Uh, the first Moses slew a lamb, got the, put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so that our people could be protected from death and set free. But the ultimate Moses was the lamb. It was his blood that was shed on the tree to deliver us from death and judgment and hell. It was his blood that he gave so that we could be forgiven our sins and we could be given his righteousness. On the overhead, the first Moses engraved the names of the tribes of Israel on, on the, uh, with precious stones, on precious stones and put them on the breastplate of the high priest. So that when the high priest was ministering in the tabernacle, uh, he took the names of Israel uh, engraved over his heart. In the overhead. But the ultimate Moses, Yeshua, is the high priest. And he stands even now before the Father to intercede for all who trust in him. You know, the scriptures say that the earthly tabernacle and temple is merely a copy of the real tabernacle and temple in heaven. And on the overhead, and Yeshua, if you repent and submit to him, because he gave his life, because he was the lamb, the ultimate Pesach lamb, Yeshua right now stands before the Father and your name is over his heart. And when the Father looks uh, at your name, he sees a diamond. He sees a ruby. He sees an absolute beauty. Because Yeshua was the ultimate Moses who gave his life. Didn't just risk his life. Who shed his blood. Didn't just shed some little lamb's blood. Because of this, you can absolutely know right now that your name is written in heaven. Written in the Lamb's book of life. Uh, not now use that truth. When Yeshua says, don't rejoice that you've made partner or have money or you got into med school or you made the soccer team, he says, stop doing that. Stop fondling that in your heart. Stop doting on that uh, and comforting your soul with that. Instead, when you get discouraged, maybe you lost money, but rejoice your name is engraved and written in heaven. Uh, That's the ultimate wealth. The wealth that never rusts, is never destroyed, where thieves can never break in and steal. Meditate on that truth until you can rejoice in the Lord despite your circumstances. Or somebody rejects you, and you lose love, you lose a boyfriend, a girlfriend. Meditate on the fact that your name is written in heaven. That's real approval. That's the ultimate love and acceptance. Think on that. On the overhead, what Yeshua is saying is rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice that he says that I'm the ultimate Moses, the ultimate redeemer and deliverer and rescuer. Think about what I've done and live on that plane of who you are in me, in Messiah. Meditate on that. Treasure that. Dream about that until you can handle anything. Because ultimately, your bad things 
will turn out for the good. And your truly good things in Messiah can never be taken away from you. And the best things are yet to come. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Let the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, that, that today that along with Habakkuk, we rejoice even in the midst of, our, of, our, of our, this plague and our sorrow and our suffering. So, Lord, we ask you today to teach us this spiritual discipline of rejoicing in you despite our circumstances. And help us to be like the sure-footed deer up on the heights, like hinds feet in high places. Lord Yeshua, we wait upon you. That our trials and our tribulations drive us to you. Use it, Lord, to, to bring us closer to you. Help us to repeat your word daily. To hide it in our hearts. Until uh, it becomes a part of us. Let us be so filled with your word that when you cut us, we bleed your scriptures. Lord, help us also to remember your great acts in history. Your great acts in our own life. Even as we remember this week the Exodus and the Passover, and we remember your crucifixion on Passover as the Passover lamb, where we're liberated and redeemed if we take shelter under your blood. For you, Yeshua, are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this remembrance is what gives us peace, your peace, Yeshua, even in the midst of plague and tribulations and trials. Help us, Lord Yeshua, to rejoice in you, uh, and, for, and for your goodness and your gift of eternal life uh, for us at, at all times. Help us to keep this heavenly perspective, Lord, to look upon you, look at you, and not to look at ourselves. Thank you, Yeshua, if we trust in you, our names are forever engraved on the palms of your hand, engraved in, in the Lamb's book of life, engraved in your heart, because you are our great high priest, as you intercede before us, before, before the Father. Help us to daily treasure that, and then we can handle everything and anything. We pray this in your name, Bashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.